Are you ready for the quantum age? Humanity's next step in evolution? Dream Vision 7 Radio Network invites you to the extraordinary platform of evolutionary voices for the quantum age. Let's explore. Learn more about this upcoming age where we bridge science with spirituality. Where potentiality meets reality. Where we take compassion into action. Our trailblazers and visionaries will ask the whys, the what ifs, while igniting continuous possibility. Come along with us into an age beyond what we know today, where we can grow together in unity consciousness. Experience evolutionary voices for the quantum age, Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern on DreamVision7Radio.com. Welcome to What's in Your Way is the Way with your host, Mary O'Malley, inviting you to open to the radical notion that in your life, whatever you perceive to be in your way is the way. In other words, your challenges, whether they be relationships, compulsions, finances, or illness, come with gifts embedded in them that can bring healing and allow you to experience the joy of being fully alive. Mary is a counselor, awakening mentor, inspirational speaker, and the author of What's in the Way is the Way, the gift of our compulsions, belonging to life, and the magical forest of aliveness. What's in Your Way is the Way with Mary O'Malley is part of Evolutionary Voices for the Quantum Age. Heard Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Hello and welcome to what's in your way is the way. And I am your host, Mary O'Malley. And today we are exploring disarming the judger. Kindness. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you can know how desolate the landscape can be between regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he, too, was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. 
Naomi Nye. Portrait of the Judger. The greatest barrier to our own healing is not the pain, sorrow, and violence inflicted upon us as children. Our greatest hindrance is our ongoing capacity to judge, to criticize, and to bring tremendous harm to ourselves. If we can harden our hearts against ourselves and meet our most tender feelings with anger and condemnation, we simultaneously armor our hearts against the possibility of gentleness, love, and healing. Wayne Muller It was early evening and the day had been a disaster. I was 24 years old and for most of my life I'd been running scared, disconnected from myself. I had tried to do it right, to be an idea of what I thought I should be, and I had failed miserably. The resulting self-revulsion had shown up in self-destructive behaviors such as overeating, drugs, and alcohol, along with an overall disgust and disregard of my body. After being raped by a stranger, I decided to run away to Europe, the intention to leave the pain behind. Instead, it traveled with me wherever I went, becoming deeper and broader every day. I ate and drank my way down the road of self-destruction. On this dark journey, I found myself house-sitting at a beautiful home high on a hill in Switzerland. But the beauty around me totally escaped my attention. All I could see was the liquor cabinet and the challenge of getting enough to drink without the owner's knowing. By adding water to the vodka, I set about consuming enough alcohol to numb the pain. Instead, it opened the floodgates of grief and self-hatred. I fell into a cesspool of despair, hopelessness, desperately searching for more alcohol to hold back the tide. But that only made it worse. There was not one iota of my being that felt anything but violent revulsion for myself. All of my anger toward life was turned toward myself, and it was extremely toxic. Standing at the end of a four-postered bed, I raised my arm to hit the bed in rage and instead struck the end board that was tucked under the duvet cover. Even with all the pain, it felt good. You are a worthless human being and this is your punishment, said the judger. I raised my arm again and again and again, bringing it down with as much force I could muster in my inebriated state. The feeling spent, I crawled exhausted into bed and cried myself to sleep. The next day, I woke up to a swollen, throbbing arm and, much to my amazement, was told by the doctor that it was broken. Even though this is a very sad story, it is not an isolated human experience. Many people on this planet at this exact moment 
are lost in this level of self-judgment, acting in ways that are destructive towards themselves, their loved ones, and society as a whole. But for most of us, our self-judgment is more subtle, concealed in a mind that believes we need to be different than we are, usually subtly, but sometimes quite loudly and obnoxiously. It compares us to some mythical idea of who we should be and then berates ourselves for coming up short of perfection. These voices come out of a deep belief at the center of our story that says who we are is not acceptable. Have you ever been afraid to tell a loved one the truth about a part of yourself because you are certain he or she would leave? This is the I am not good enough, right enough, perfect enough to be loved place. The chant goes on to say, I should be better. I have to, I ought to, I must do or be whatever my arbitrary definition of being enough is. So we all become an ongoing project, struggling to approximate perfection, all the while secretly knowing we've become an idea about ourselves rather than being who we really are. These shoulds and oughts within us can grow to monstrous proportions, completely blotting out our beauty, our uniqueness, our perfection and freezing us out of life. Imagine you're sitting in a restaurant with two people in the booth behind you. One is talking to the other exactly the way you talk to yourself. Most people would have to get up and leave. As Stephen Levine has said, if we talk to our friends like we talk to ourselves, we wouldn't have any friends. Our mind's cruelty can be all-pervasive and seemingly relentless. The birth of the judging mind. We are all trying to be cool, very fearful and guarded, hoping we won't say it wrong or somebody will discover we are a phony. Patricia's son. At a gathering of Western Buddhist teachers, a man tried to describe to the Dalai Lama the depth of self-judgment he felt inside. Because the Dalai Lama had never experienced this level of self-judgment that can warp and cripple a life, he was deeply moved by the feelings the man was expressing. He stopped what the group was doing and asked everyone to share if they too experienced this cruelty of mind. When they all answered yes, He was amazed. Every human being, including the Dalai Lama, carries some level of self-judgment. It's called guilt, and it's a useful tool for functioning within the framework of society. But in the disconnected industrial societies of the West, this voice has grown to enormous proportions within most human beings, moving from the level of, I've done something wrong, to I am wrong. How did this come to be? At our birth, we were pure innocence and uniqueness. 
we were also extremely vulnerable. Everything was much bigger than we were and definitely more powerful. And the primal need for survival was in our genes. A part of us knew that these giants we live with were the ones who could either give or withhold the essentials, food, water, and shelter. Our animal nature understood perfectly that to please them meant life. To not please them meant death. Molding and shaping ourselves to the unspoken requirements of our family environment became the order of the day. Ramdas, author of Remember, Be Here Now, calls it somebody training. Learning the skills to be what we should be according to our family system and our society. We didn't put all of this energy into becoming what our parents needed us to be just to get our basic survival needs met. We also did this to get their attention. Attention is nourishment, and we all thrive in its glow. At its best, it is pure love. But in whatever form, we needed connection even more than food and water in order to survive. To fully develop, we needed focused and accepting interactions with other human beings, people who were able to meet us exactly as we were. At the time I was a child, many parents were incapable of meeting their children or could only do so for brief moments before they would disconnect again. The focus of my parents' generation was acquiring a better life. They had gone through the Depression and World War II, and they were concerned with secular safety and the appearance of things. Two cars in the garage with a washer and dryer, readily available drink and smoke, and life was good. Their focus was so outer-directed that for the first time since mammals showed up, Babies were not nourished by a mother's breast. Our mothers were also convinced by their doctors that to be anesthetized during the birth experience was the best way to go. And in those first precious days after our birth, when the bonding that is necessary for the mothering experience to be generated, our mothers were recovering from that anesthetic while we lay in a nursery far, far away. Being this disconnected from their children, these women could accept that bottle feeding every four hours, whether we were awake or not, was appropriate, and that if we cried in between, that was just the child's willfulness which needed to be thwarted. In my own life, I not only didn't receive the breast, I was not held while being fed. The bottle proper, that invention from hell, that hung the bottle above the baby while it lay in its bed, was the rage of the time. There was no heartbeat for me to listen to, no adoring gaze of my mother, no tender playing with my hair. When I tried to give myself some of the loving connection by sucking my thumb, it was painted with a foul-tasting substance. When I sucked my fingers, they were painted too. But the desire to be comforted is primal, and I sucked my fingers and my thumb, bad-tasting guck and all. My parents were so disconnected. 
that they splinted my fingers with popsicle sticks. My mother shared with me years later the grief she felt when she listened to me wailing and then crying and then whimpering in my crib and finally falling asleep. But the programming and disconnection of her generation was too strong for her to rise above it. I have been rereading Gorillas in the Mist, the story of Diane Fossey's interactions with the gorillas of Rwanda. After years of watching the different families, it was evident to her that if gorilla children had attentive and supportive parents, they were inquisitive and fun-loving children, safe in their environment. If their parents were inattentive or unemotional, they often became either very shy and tentative or irritating and even rebellious. With no bonding time after birth and our parents being so outwardly directed and disconnected, most of us only got moments of true connection. This is one of the main reasons we became an idea of what we think we should be rather than what we truly are. In order to survive, we learned very early on to adapt and become whatever our parents needed us to be to keep the thread of connection alive. Children will go to amazing lengths to become the child their parents want, and they are very sensitive and responsive to the unspoken needs of their family. If our parents desired a quiet little girl, we tamed our exuberance. If they demanded a little boy who was brave and strong, we tried to curtail our fears. If pleasing and molding ourselves to what was expected didn't work, we withdrew or rebelled, both of which are attention-getting devices. With every generation since then, we have become more skillful in our parenting, but still, many children don't receive the minimum daily requirement of pure attention that is needed to grow into a healthy and mature adult. We live in a society that is so outer-directed that success is defined by the amount of money we make and the house we live in, rather than the quality of our human relationships. The less of the basic requirement of unconditional attention we received, and the more we got the exact opposite, is the degree to which the self-judging quality of the mind will gain a foothold inside of you. We all created a part of ourselves that was watching as to whether we were being the right kind of child. This part is what I call the judger. The more unsafe the situation was, the stronger the voice of judgment. It watched every move we made, becoming the architect of the somebody we thought life needed us to be. The judger listened to the adults in its environment and then internalized their voices, learning how to shame any part inside that felt like it could threaten survival. Our rage, don't you dare raise your voice to me. Our selfishness, you are bad for not wanting to share your toys. Our fear, don't be such a fraidy cat. Our sadness, big boys don't cry. 
These words we may have heard from our parents became the way we learned how to relate to ourselves. Besides not being seen, there was one other thing operating in our childhood that made the growth of the judger possible. We felt we were the center of the universe. Our sense of other was not very highly developed. So the conclusion we came to was that if something was not right, if our parents were mad at each other, if they abused us, if they were considering a divorce, it was because we had done something wrong. All we have to do is interview children of all ages whose parents have divorced to discover that every single one believes they were the one to blame, even if they were told they were not. Deep in our story, each one of us has beliefs of how bad we were when we were children, and then they follow us into adulthood. We hide this fear that we are bad and wrong deep inside of ourselves, and this belief is always secretly looking for more proof of our defectiveness. Robert Bly, a well-known poet, has a wonderful analogy. He says, we arrive from the far reaches of the universe as 360-degree balls of radiance, place ourselves at our parents' feet and say, here I am. And they say, I want you to be different. That's where the judger begins. It points out all the unacceptable parts inside of us and shoves them back into what Bly calls the long, dark bag we drag behind us. What we hide composts in the bag gets wild and builds up ahead of steam while we expend all of our energy maintaining a mask by which we purchase love and affection. Whenever these wild parts threaten to break out of the bag, our power, our stubbornness, our exuberance, our terror, sadness, rage, we deny, numb out, or project them onto someone else as fast as we can. We relate to these parts exactly as they were met when we were developing the image of ourselves, usually with fear and rejection. We have become a society motivated by a great yearning for love and at the same time permeated by the terror that we won't be good enough to get it. We are performers, moving out of the tragic fear that we are not lovable until we do it right. Two of the favorite conversations of the judger are, what did I do wrong? And what do I need to do in order to stop this? This just keeps us lost in the land of struggle, always looking for what needs to be different and continually trying a variety of methods to fix, change, get rid of, or ignore that which we deem defective. Rarely, if ever, do we know how to meet ourselves exactly as we are. The Price We Pay If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life 
sorrow and suffering enough to disarm our hostilities. Longfellow. In order to move beyond believing what the judger is saying, it is skillful to see the effects it has in our life. The prime detriment is that the judger cuts us off from our lives. Imagine what it was like very early on in your life when you were comfortable with yourself and with your life. You probably don't remember this, but you, like all people, live for a time completely at one with yourself and with your life. Then you began, in response to the people and events around you, to weave a story in your head about who you were and what you needed to be. You became a human doing rather than a human being. Now imagine yourself as an adult sitting in a room immersed in a novel about your life titled, What Do I Need to Do to Become Whole? In order to focus on this story, you have to shut out all the experiences of life around you. This is what it is like inside of us. For most of us, for most of the moments of our lives, we are all immersed in this story in our heads rather than being present for the adventure that is our lives. The judger also causes us to live in the agonizing land of regret. Oh, if only I hadn't, or why didn't I? We can all feel the dropping sensation in our stomach as we hear those words. Yes, we have all done things that were unskillful. We have all lied, cheated, and put ourselves first. We have hurt friends and loved ones deeply, sometimes knowingly, sometimes unknowingly. But if we step back far enough, we can see that each of these mistakes in our lives taught us something, and even in some deep way beyond our ordinary comprehension, gave to those we hurt essential experiences in the unfolding of their lives. To be caught in the land of self-judgment also freezes us out of the well of creativity that lies within every single one of us. Rather than engaging with the adventure of our lives, we sit on the sidelines, frozen into the belief that we aren't enough. To see how frozen we are, imagine you have just come to this planet and you see somebody whiz by on a mountain bike and you say, hey, that looks like fun. So off you go to find a bike. Your first time on it, you pedal a few times and fall over, skinning your elbow. Oh, what did I do wrong, you say. You get back on the bike, pedal a few more times before falling the other way and skinning your knees. Oh, I can't ride a bike because I didn't get my master's degree, or maybe it's because my nose is too big, you mumble to yourself. So off you go to have plastic surgery and wonder why it didn't help. Then you try again, falling over the handlebars this time. You then decide that there must be something so defective inside of you that you stop trying to ride the bike and you put down the quicksand. 
It is quicksand, yeah. You then decide that there must be something so defective inside of you that you stop trying to ride the bike and put down the kickstand, trying to look cool. Every once in a while, you move the bike around so people will think that you've been riding and hope nobody will notice that it's not true. Being run by the need to always do things right, we cut ourselves off from all that is spontaneous, authentic, and creative in us. We close the door to being engaged with the adventure of living because the judger in us believes it isn't safe. The judger denies, rejects, and crushes all that doesn't fit into its idea of what we should be. As we get older, it gains momentum, and we become tighter and tighter, struggling to make ourselves better, so we will finally be worthy of the love and acceptance that we yearned for. If only becomes our mantra. If only we lose 10 pounds or become more loving or understand where our heartaches came from, then finally we will be okay. We become caught in an endless struggle of trying to be perfect and wonder why we feel so empty. There's only one problem with this way of being with life. It doesn't work. We have become addicted to the struggling self to the idea that we are an ongoing project in need of getting it together. But this struggle never brings the depth of healing we desire. One of the most powerful side effects of the judger is the meanness it generates in the world. It took courage and unflinching honesty to see how much I judged other people. At long meditation retreats, I began to notice that if I was in my center... I experience other retreatants from either a neutral position or from an open heart. If I was struggling, wanting myself and my meditations to be different than what they were, my experience dramatically changed. Oh, I would judge them for being too loud, too stiff, too slow, too precise. I would judge them if I perceived that they were trying to do it right. Oh, look at them trying to look so cool. And I would judge them if they were doing it wrong, my version of wrong. It was astounding and very freeing for me to see that I experienced anybody else's success as a threat to my own. As I watched, I could see how much judging operated in my life usually very subtly, but it was there nonetheless. There was a vivid moment during a meditation retreat I attended when I clearly saw the part of my mind that sees other people's success as a judgment of my own. I was eating a snack during a mid-morning break. My intent for the retreat was to be present for my food, and yet I rarely was. My mind was wandering here and there. Then a woman sat down three tables in front of me and began to eat. Her eyes were closed, her actions very present, and I hated her because she was doing it right. I watched my mind judge her, but very quickly it started judging me. My heart completely closed as I beat myself up for my eating and my judging. Then 
curiosity kicked in, and I could see I was just caught in the judger. I was able to soften around it and open my heart to how much my mind is always expecting me to be doing better than what I am. I let go of depersonalization of this woman and silently thanked her for the gift she was giving me just by being herself. I could then rejoice in her moments of presence rather than seeing them as a demand that I be better. It became much clearer for the rest of the retreat that when I was accepting exactly who I was, I became deeply accepting of everybody else. The devastation of comparing and judging shows up strongly in the dance of intimate relationships. When we are judging ourselves, it's practically impossible to see the other person. It took me years after my divorce to acknowledge that my need to focus on the so-called inadequacies of my husband have become the pressure release valve for my own imagined defects. As long as I was trying to change him, I didn't have to see what was asking to be seen in my own life. The judger not only keeps us disconnected in one-on-one relationships, but also in groups. One of the places it is easiest to see is within families. Every family has a person who is a repository of its shadow. It is the person the rest of the family is always talking about, going over their deficiencies like a litany. They become the person on whom each family member can project their own fear of inadequacy. If there is a deep insecurity in a family or an organization, a single scapegoat may not be enough. Then the group collectively chooses other groups to put down, to be seen as less than. It happens in the caste system in India and causes great human devastation. It happens among different skin colors all around the world, preventing people from coming together as a whole. It also happens around gays and lesbians. Some of the most gifted people this world has ever known have had to hide their sexual preferences because of the fear of persecution. There are people all around you for all sorts of reasons who feel they can't let you know who they really are. There is no place where the cruelty of the judging mind is more apparent than on the playgrounds of our schools. Children taunt, harass, and torment any child who is different. This is the result of a voice inside of them that says, you make me uncomfortable because you remind me of how different I feel. So I will insult you and reject you so everyone will think I am normal. I once came across a man speaking on one of the daytime talk shows. I was captured by the quality of this person. He radiated strength, integrity, and kindness. Instead of ears, He had little bumps on each side of his head, and he was recalling a time when he was about eight years old, and the other boys on his school bus had ganged up on him. He tried hiding under one of the seats, and when he finally made it to the front of the bus, the driver's response was to put him off the bus. Wandering scared through the city, 
he finally came across a metropolitan bus stop, but had to search for the courage to get on one of the buses. Thankfully, the driver met him with understanding and compassion and helped him to get to school. The judging voice within children that tries to annihilate anything that is different doesn't disappear when we become an adult. It just becomes more subtle and often is turned inside towards ourselves. When we are able to stop judging our judgment, we see that we don't need to judge ourselves, judge others, or even judge our lives. We can see that each and every experience in our life is a necessary part of this schoolroom of the heart. Each of us got the exact set of parents, the best body, and the most appropriate personality for our journey of awakening. Each and every one of us has been embarrassed time and time again, sadistically hurt and deeply abandoned, and each one of us has fallen short of the mark over and over again. Having a sexually seductive father with whom I had a very distant and difficult relationship, I carried much blame and a victim mentality in relationship to him. As I met my rage and was able to comprehend myself not as a victim, but as an awakening soul, I had a dream. My father was sitting on the floor of the kitchen where I lived during my teenage years, an extremely traumatic time for me. I came into the kitchen and knelt down in front of him and said, Do you know I'm the earth awakening? And he said yes. I went on to say, And you were the most perfect father I could have had in order to awaken. And tears began to stream down his face as he received this compassionate healing. Our parents, siblings, teachers, and friends simply acted from the place that they found themselves in. Whatever gifts of pain they gave us were threads in the tapestry being woven by something bigger than we are. As Shakespeare so eloquently says, all the world's a stage and men and women merely players. What is really going on here is far beyond our comprehension. Nothing is ever about what it seems to be. And in this unfolding, each of us has particular dance steps we are destined to dance, including pleasure and pain, loss and gain. We can no longer afford to have the judging mind be our predominant view of the world. We need to become honest enough so that we can acknowledge that we're all doing the same thing, that we're all caught in the same web of delusion. Sir Thomas More, on the way to his beheading, was supposed to have said, We're all in the same cart going to execution. How can I hate anyone or wish anyone harm? If we begin to, with great courage and honesty, watch our judging minds. It will take us to the healing of compassion for ourselves, for our loved ones, for strangers, countries, organizations, and humanity as a whole. Only compassion will heal the eons of fallout from the cruelty of our judging minds. 
It will allow us to see into all the dark corners of the human experience and in deep empathy, connect with the pain we're all in, even if it's a king beheading wives, counselors, and Thomas More himself. Compassion can see the pain out of which these actions came, whether it is an individual, a family, or a societal group that has judged all of us as inadequate. With this seeing, our hearts swell with a great desire to reach out and tenderly meet this common pain, whether it's inside of us or in the world. Beyond self-judgment, the healing is to let yourself in when you find yourself the most unacceptable. Stephen Levine There is a way out. And actually, it's very simple. It has to be in order to not get caught in the incessant need of the mind to compare and judge our attempts to heal ourselves. We don't need to destroy the judging quality in our minds, nor do we need to deny it's there or try to leap over it by becoming perfect. This only gives it more power. The healing comes from the ability to see your judger, to begin to relate to it, rather than being lost in its cruelty. Our standard approach is to try to understand where these voices came from and how to get rid of them. This can just keep us more caught in the struggles of our mind. When various people tried to help me, it was invariably based on the belief that something was wrong with me and I needed to be fixed. This approach got translated by the maze of my mind into proof that I was inherently defective, which often just drove me deeper into the maze. At other times, trying to become different and better did help to create better states of mind, and I had moments where I wasn't devastated by the frontal attacks of my judging mind. But the roots of this cruel judger were deeply embedded in my being, and its subtle chant of self-hatred still permeated most of my experiences. I no longer hit or mutilated myself, but I could be driving my car and think of something that I had done wrong and find myself hitting the steering wheel, saying, you dumb shit. Or I'd be walking up and down a grocery store aisle chanting, bad girl, bad girl, to myself. The judger still ran me from underneath my everyday mind. It was when I began to be able to step back enough and see my judger that I began to experience a level of spontaneity and freedom in my life I had never known before. To get to know our internal judger allows us moments of not identifying with what it's saying. The process of learning how to relate to it rather than being caught in it has become a freedom from the cruelty of my mind that was absolutely unimaginable for most of my life before my awakening. In order to begin to be able to see and not identify with the judger, there are four essential things we need to understand about this inner voice. First of all, everybody has it. We're all addicted to self-judgment. We're all very good at hiding it. 
A good example is John Bradshaw, best-selling author of Homecoming and the popular video series Bradshaw on the Family. He has done it right as far as the society is concerned because he has fame and fortune and has accomplished important things in the field of his expertise. And yet, in an interview, he said, If you put me in a room with people with letters after their names, like Ph.D. or M.D., my shame voices no. These people are going to figure out that I don't know anything. That is the judging mind we all carry. It is important to notice that no matter what we do, no matter what we become, that voice never completely goes away. It can become quieter, but it can flare up at a moment's notice. Allow yourself to feel the relief that comes from recognizing that you're not alone. We are all living much of the time inside of a mind that demands we be perfect and judges our attempts to be so. It's much like walking down a path with a hand gripping our arm, subtly pushing us along, yanking subtly to the left, holding us back, and then insistently turning us to the right. It's constantly saying that we should be further along the path or even on an entirely different one. We are so busy trying to respond to its signals that we can't see the beauty that surrounds us and are unable to rest in the creative unfolding of our lives. The judger loves to decide what it considers to be a success. It may be the buff body of a weightlifter, the fancy lifestyle of a corporate executive, or the joyful spontaneity of a free spirit. Then it looks out and sees somebody who appears to have accomplished this and says, wow, they did it. They have it together and I don't. Oh, the cruelty of our minds. We are so occupied in trying to prop up our image that we never take the time to realize that everyone feels the same way. In my counseling practice, I hear countless stories of people's belief in their imperfection, and all the while sitting in front of me, I see an exquisite facet of the sacred essence of life. The second idea that can bring us freedom from the judger is that it was born out of benevolence. If we look closely at its birth, we can see that it was a very skillful tool to have when we were growing up. When it first showed up on the scene, it was trying to stop behaviors that seemed to threaten our survival. No matter how outrageous and unconscious it has become, on some level it has always been trying to take care of us, trying to whip us into shape so we can know the love we so deeply long for. Imagine a child in the corner of a room where his parents are fighting. Scared to death, the child is saying to himself, Oh, I was a bad boy. I scattered my blocks all over the floor and made my parents mad. Now they are fighting. If I'm neat and tidy, then everything will be okay. To take on responsibility for the messes in our family gave us a feeling of control and safety when we were little children. The third thing that is important to know about the judger is it fails to see that mistakes, yes, mistakes, are an integral part of life. As Steve Levine once said, if you take a step forward, you move a few feet. 
If you fall flat on your face, you move at least five or six feet. <laughs> Rather than allowing for mistakes, we see them as proof that we are bad and wrong. We are like an airplane flying on radar from Los Angeles to Hawaii. The plane is continually drifting off course with the radar bringing it back. Our lives are also destined to be lived that way, drifting off course and being brought back over and over again. That is how we learn and grow. And yet most people's navigation system is tuned to the belief that we should never be off course. And if we are, we are wrong in our failures. We live in the land of duality, male, female, dark, light, up, down. All these pairs are a given in life. But the opposites of right, wrong, and good, bad are merely creations of the human mind. What one society may deem natural and good may be absolutely abhorrent to another. Each of us has woven our own code of right and wrong out of the fabric of our family and our society. Rather than using this code as a benevolent radar system for maneuvering through our lives, we use it to bludgeon ourselves. Imagine the pilot in that airplane hating himself every time the radar indicated that an adjustment needed to be made. That is all too often the internal experience of most human beings. The reason we don't use our radar skillfully is we don't see that moments off course are as integral and important as those moments of being on course. It is our weak points, our failures, our confusions, and our mistakes that teach us clarity, wisdom, compassion, and healing. We are all works in progress until the day we die. And freedom comes from allowing ourselves to be human. It is the willingness to embrace our humanness that brings us home. It's okay to make mistakes. A mistake is just a mistake. The word sin originally was an archery term that meant off the mark. Making mistakes is a part of the process of learning. One of the main attributes of successful human beings is that they are comfortable with making mistakes. Our perfection is in our non-perfection. What a relief. The last thing to explore about the judger is that it doesn't see the whole picture. Imagine a construction site in a downtown area that is fenced off with high boards. There are holes so that people walking by can look in and see how the building is progressing. Imagine somebody looking through one tiny hole and what they see is a pile of garbage. The assumption is made that this is a sloppy and messy construction site. But because the hole does not allow a complete view of the work area or a comprehension of what had transpired during the day, there is no understanding that this garbage gathered together in one place in order for the dump truck to pick it up that evening. There is not even the willingness to concede that garbage is a necessary byproduct of the building project. That is what our judges do. They look through a very narrow perspective, focusing on what they see as defective and assuming the worst. They don't recognize that the garbage of our lives, our personality traits, habits, mistakes, and perceived shortcomings compost quite nicely 
into fertilizer for our growth. An example from my life is that I come from a family of lawyers. Mm-hmm-hmm. An example from my life is that I come from a family of lawyers. My father, grandfather, uncle, sister, and some cousins are all lawyers, and most of the other people in my life have graduated with some degree. One sister graduated summa cum laude from Bryn Mawr, and the other studied at the Sorbonne in France. I, on the hand, went to college, but never graduated. I was also 18 months younger than a sister whose mode of survival in our family was to become the accomplished one. In keeping with that identity, she got straight A's. I got A's and B's, and my judger said, boy, are you dumb. She became a successful lawyer, while I did not discover my destiny until I was almost 40, which proved I was not as intelligent as the rest of my family, and that I was a failure. I believed this deeply for years, and if somebody complimented me on a moment of intelligence, I would think, boy, I certainly have you fooled. This belief had grown to such enormous proportions that I was defenseless in the face of my judger's relentless cruelty. When the judger pointed out to me the million ways that I was stupid, it sounded exactly like an accomplished trial lawyer who had prepared an ironclad brief with footnotes and a bibliography as thick as an encyclopedia that proved I was less than everybody else. Being so completely convinced by my judger that I was inept and stupid, I didn't have a clue about who I really was. And when I showed my mother a few months before she died, a rough draft of my first book, Belonging to Life, she said, I had no idea that you were that smart. As I have discovered how to relate to my judger by watching it, I have learned how to not be seduced by its voice in its ironclad case for my stupidity as dissolved in the light of my attention. I have also discovered that underneath its conversation, the exact opposite of what I thought myself to be is true, that I have an innate intelligence that helps me to live in a skillful and compassionate way. So if calls to you, Give your self-judging voice a name. Make sure it's a kind name, for the judger is not your enemy. And whenever you notice talking in your head, say hello using its name. It is truly possible to unhook from your old self-judgments so you can know the joy of being authentically you. Thank you for listening. Namaste. Calling all authors. Have you been considering an audiobook? Well, look no further. Come take advantage of Dream Vision 7 Radio Network's unique in-house audiobook production, which includes benefits and bonuses from our radio station. Let our knowledgeable staff guide you to create the audiobook you've always dreamed of without breaking the bank. Check out our full one-stop service from A to Z, including the ACX process. Schedule a free consultation by calling 508-226-1723. That's 508-226-1723. Or go to DreamVision7Radio.com.
Thank you for listening to this edition of What's in Your Way is the Way with your host, Mary O'Malley. You can access Mary's offerings on her websites, maryomalley.com and whatsintheway.com. Join Mary next time to experience the peace and joy that is always with you on Evolutionary Voices for the Quantum Age. Heard Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. Eastern on the Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. This is Dream Vision 7 Radio Network, uniting mankind with universal love. Our shows are created from the heart, bringing each listener to a place of divine enlightenment. Breathe, relax, and enjoy. Let life flow.